Please welcome to the stage me, Sam Clements. And welcome to the 90 Minute or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Usually. Today, we're doing an actual film screening at the London Podcast Festival. We're live! And then for context, uh, listeners, uh, it's very early on a Sunday morning. Everybody's come out to watch Naked Gun two and a half uh, to do this episode. Hugely appreciate you guys being there. Please laugh, cheer and, and all that during the show. But I'm not just doing a podcast with you. Uh, please join me in welcoming our special guest, comedian, co-host of the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast and author of the brand new book, The Theory of Everything Else, A Voyage into the World of the Weird, Dan Schreiber. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Hey, Dan. Hi. God, wasn't it good? What a what a good what a good time. Yeah, I love that movie so much. There's a few questionable things in it. Um, <laughs> but I think it started whole, with the O.J. Simpson credit. You felt the room slightly <laughs> yeah. shiver, didn't you? Yeah. It's Leslie so, Nielsen. Yes, Priscilla Presley. Oh, O.J. Yeah. <laughs> what do we do about that? Is there like you know in the way that Spielberg goes in and changes guns to walkie-talkies? Can we? You want to turn him into a walkie-talkie? I just want to... CGI? It's just unfortunate, because these are some of the greatest comedies ever. Um, and then OJ's in it. Yeah. There's See, even mentioning him has completely altered <laughs> the really, mood. really brought the mood down, yeah. Dan. You were so good before you came on stage. I well, know, thank you. <laughs> there's a few things in the film like that, though. Like, we'll get onto the film, film proper, but um, at the very, very beginning, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a woman who slaps the camera, uh, and it's Zaza Gabor. It's Zaza Gabor, yeah. Who got arrested in 1989 for shoplifting. Um, that was a reference to that. It's very she also, <laughs> she also slapped a police officer. That was part of the arrest. So that was a... I mean, how topical would that have been at the time? People would have lost their shit. Yeah. In 1991. That would have been huge. <laughs> it got nothing to. You and I were like, fuck, that was funny. <laughs> Silence in the room, though. But now you know. So think back and have a quick laugh. <laughs> that was very good. We brought yeah. the mood back up, yes. Um, before we get on to the film, yeah. let's, talk about, let's talk about you. Yeah, okay. It feels, I mean, I know on your podcast, because I've listened to a bunch and I love listening to them, it feels less relevant to talk about me when there's a room full of people to hear talk about. I know, the... but this is going out for the people at home. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Right. We'll talk about me for a bit. It is relevant, though, because we're at the London Podcast Festival, and Dan, you make a podcast. That is your qualification for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, no such thing as a fish. Did it start in 2015? I think so, yeah. so years ago? Yeah. Uh, how, how did that come about? Because that is a huge podcast now. Um, it came about because we were... I, I work for QI, um, for people who don't know it. It's, it's the TV show that started with Stephen Fry as a host panel show. It's all about interesting facts. And part of the production team was this elite unit of fact finders, um, <laughs> we call ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we were put together by a guy called John Lloyd, who's the creator of the show, who's just one of the greatest comedy people in this country. He gave us Blackadder as a producer and not the nine o'clock news, Spitting Image, uh, co-wrote like, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the original radio series with Douglas Adams. He's, he's just a huge guy. And QI was his biggest 
return project for a number of years. So he had everyone in the comedy world who was ready to write for this show, but he did this very bizarre thing where he started looking for people who were in the fields of history and science and so on, because he thought, I just, those are the people who are going to know how to find facts. I arrived as a 19-year-old kid from Australia, went to a very odd uh, Rudolf Steiner school, um, so I kind of didn't have any qualifications. John met me very randomly. We had this meeting, and I think he was surprised by the amount of ignorance I had for everything, and he thought, ah, that could be really useful for the team. Because sometimes, sometimes people who know those subjects really well forget what the interesting bit is. They sort of step over the interesting bit to get to this more complicated bit. So I'd be in the room going, whoa, what was that? And and identifying the interestingness. And yeah, so that's how I got my my job. And I was working with QI for a long time. And I'd left and I'd gone off and produced radio shows and stuff and came back. And this was at a time when podcasts were sort of like they were part of, I don't know, they, they weren't quite there yet. But they had sort of like heroes that we were watching, one of whom's in the audience, uh, Helen Zaltzman, who is just like, that's who that's who we looked at of what we needed to do with our career with the podcast. We sort of went because they released a book, you know, and we, we just followed that. Um, and so we were having all these chats in the office where we were coming up with, you know, questions for QI. And I just noticed that we were having good chats and I thought this this should be a show. So we tried it and then it just worked and we've been going ever since. Oh, and just for quickly, for people who don't know it, it's all it is, is the four of us sit around. There's four of us on the show. We just tell each other our favorite fact that we found over the last seven days and then just discuss that fact until the conversation peters out. And then we, we sort of edit that shitty bit out and then just move on to the next fact. Yeah. It's a really entertaining pod and it's been the sort of same lineup for the whole run. Do you still do your job on QI in addition to the pod? No, no. They, they fired me from that a long time ago. <laughs> I, I, cause I have very questionable facts. I, I like reading about yetis and stuff like that, which are apparently not real. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I know they're not real, but it's still a fact that people believe in them, that some people believe in them. So, um, no, I, there was QI used to have this tier system when we were writing the series where it'd be like great questions, uh, you know, like mediocre questions, you know, that could be worked on and so on. I had my own category at the bottom, <laughs> which was like the car park of Dan facts. And that was pure desperation if they had nothing. So yeah, um, it was an honor to get that, but they did fire me as well. But the show, I mean, the show was here last week and you've been taking yeah. it on tour. It seems to have taken on a, a life of its own, especially, you know, taking it around the world and performing to, to audiences. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the most joyous thing about podcasting. And it's, it, again, when Helen was doing her show and we were watching how they were doing books and stuff, we we kind of thought this is really fun because it's not just about a podcast. It's all about what you can do off the back of the podcast. You can go on live tours, you can release books, you can do, we released a record like a vinyl. Um, it was, it was so cool. We, we got, um, Corey Taylor from Slipknot to do a secret track at the end of it. Um, we did a TV show on BBC two called not the nine o'clock news. Sorry. It was called, uh, no such thing as the news. And that was amazing. We did it the year that Trump got elected. So we were on the night after Trump got elected after Newsnight. And this was it was a crazy experience. So it's led to a lot of adventures, which is amazing. And it gives you this one extra thing, which you can't really do in any other area of comedy, which is you can see the analytics because of just the way that it works of people listening over the world. So we can see that we can play a gig in, I don't know, some small town in Europe, you know, and actually go there and fill out a room. That, that's been the most amazing thing traveling the world to these small spots going, we know people listen here and, and playing a show. 
That's great. Guided by data. Yeah. The joy of podcasting. Yeah, exactly. We're all nerds. <laughs> uh, you mentioned how with uh, No Such Thing as a Fish, you guys have written uh, you know, quite a few books now, yeah. uh, but you've recently written your own book. Yes, I have. It's called The Theory of Everything Else. And it's my... It's the idea that I, I just love that all the years of research I've been doing, if you look into any character from history or even present time, every single person, the more you dig into it, you discover that they believe something just quite weird. Just everyone's got this little tiny bit of batshit in them. And often that little bit of batshit kind of helps them to think differently and inform their world. And I love science, but I do think there's this movement to sort of stamp out these fringe ideas. And most people, because they, they associate them with crazy thinking and sort of conspiracy theory. But there's a bunch of us who just like to think weirdly and love a ghost story and love um, love hearing someone who thinks they might have seen a UFO. You know, those goosebump stories that you, you sort of hear and can make you just remember you're alive in a universe. Um, so I sort of collected a lot of stories about people who think differently, who have changed the world. Most surprising for me was um, PCR. How many people here in this room, just by show of hands, or uh, because we're recording noise, who'd heard of PCR prior to the pandemic? Yeah, a couple, right? Like, it's really not a lot. Do you work in the sciences at all? You do. There you go. So if you work in archaeology or the sciences or police work, you know, it's it's the game changer of all game changers. It's most most people say there's like pre-PCR and post-PCR in terms of chemistry. Like, it's absolutely a game-defying uh, change and discovery. It was invented by a guy called Carrie Mullis. Have you heard of Carrie Mullis? Okay, so isn't that interesting? This This is a thing that's absolutely changed the world, saved millions in the pandemic. And barely anyone's heard of Carrie Mullis. Two years after Carrie Mullis invented PCR, he claimed that he'd been abducted by a phosphorescent-speaking glowing raccoon <laughs> while he was trying to go to the toilet one night. And he spent the rest of his life looking for this glowing raccoon, trying to prove that it had abducted him to a, an alien spaceship. This is a guy who invented PCR. And the thing is, when he came up with PCR, everyone thought he was nuts for the invention and said, this isn't going to work. And he should have given up on it. But the thing that drove him to find the glowing raccoon is the same thing that said, no, PCR is a thing. And that's why we have it. Science would have probably got to it in the end. That's the thing with science. We get to it. But would we have it now if it wasn't for him? Don't know. You know, it's unfortunate, but that's, that's the thing. So anyway, it's a whole book about just people who think differently. You know, the fact that Novak Djokovic goes every year to Visoko in Bosnia to sit and ingest cosmic energy from a 12,000 year old pyramid that was built by a lost civilization is amazing. And it's particularly amazing because it's definitely not a pyramid. It's just a hill that looks like a pyramid. <laughs> and he does that every year. He's built tennis courts there. He's trying to breed some kind of like super uh, mutant tennis player now that will take over. So yeah, it's, it's just a book about all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mutant tennis players, glowing raccoons. This sounds like my kind of book. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, hopefully. Have you got any film uh, related stories in, in the book too? Yeah, I do actually. Um, I was writing a chapter and I, I discovered uh, through a friend that Coming to America, the great Eddie Murphy movie, when they were filming it, and this is from an anecdote in Nile Rogers' book, uh, his autobiography, he'd been hired to be the soundtrack composer. So he flew into California. He was all excited. Uh, he had months to do this project. And when he arrived, the director and the production team said, we've built you a makeshift basically hut on the studio because we've had to move the entire production forward. We have to, we're going to film at breakneck speed now. We need to get it done ASAP. And he was like, why? What's happened? And it turned out that as the production was about to start filming, Eddie Murphy had watched a documentary on the predictions of Nostradamus. And within it, there was a prediction that 
LA was going to drop off into the ocean on a specific day that they were filming on. And so he changed the entire production schedule. They moved everything so that he could film all his scenes and get out of there before LA disappeared. So Nile Rogers, who was doing these dailies where he was recording um, the dailies, he he had to just compose every day to the song. And then they all got out of there. The movie was done because of Nostradamus. Like he's never predicted anything right, but he's really affected <laughs> the world in weird ways. Um, Sylvester Stallone never used to do any movie unless he consulted with his mother, Jackie Stallone, on the star signs to say whether or not the movies were right to do. Um, and she, I, I spent ages, like years, trying to get in contact with her. I kept sending her pictures of my bum because she, she's a rumpologist. I don't know if you've heard of rumpology. Yeah. She, she invented rumpology. She coined it. It's the idea that you can tell, like, you, like the palm readings, but you can tell by the wrinkles on your butt what your future and past is going to be. Uh, your past is in regressive life uh, checks. Um, and so she used to call every single one of Sylvester Stallone's movies. And um, he believes in reincarnation. You know, he's an interesting guy. Thinks he was once a boxer who got a death punch uh, in the ring. So that was one life. I think he thought he was a Roman soldier. I think he was guillotined at one point. And then he suspects he might have been a Guatemalan monkey. <laughs> but he's not sure about that. <laughs> Needs to check the rumps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so for the show today, we reached out and we asked you to pick a film that we could screen to an actual audience, which we don't normally get to do on the podcast. We normally talk about the idea of screening one of the films that we might cover. But uh, but Dan, you had, a, you had a projector, we had a room full of people. Um, you, got to, you got to choose a film. Where did you start when I gave you this piece of homework? I thought... I'm in a mode at the moment of I've got two young boys and a third on the way, but my oldest son is five years old. And I thought about all the movies. I'm just really in a retro mode at the moment, trying to introduce him to all the stuff that I loved as a kid. So when you message me, I happen to be really having thought a lot about those ideas recently. And the one thing that kept coming back to me was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Just, just I learned so much from the cartoon. I learned so much from the movies. Things that were just wrong, like no anchovies on pizza. Like I just used to say that. Uh, that just used to be my thing. And then finally had him. It was great. I don't know what they were talking about. But that's that I realized that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first movie, was the movie that I needed to pick for this. Um, but then it was 92 minutes long. So I had to go for the second one, which is terrible. But I would, yeah, I thought that could be fun to talk about. Secret of the Ooze. So for those of you who've been following the, the promotion of this event, we went on sale originally with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze from 1991, sequel to, as Dan mentioned, the original film, which is slightly, slightly too long. Uh, this film's great. It's got David Warner in, uh, it's, you know, Turtles, Master Splinter, all that stuff. Not allowed to screen it. Uh, we did book the film. And then the distributor said, oh, we don't have the rights. No one's ever asked about screening this film before. <laughs> you have to take it off sale. Um, so, so, but they did offer us, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Michael Bay remade these films. He made one and two. And they said, you could screen the Michael Bay version, which is about four hours long. So uh, we didn't screen that. <laughs> we didn't screen this. So, uh, so Dan, I had to say, and it's the first time it's happened, I had to come back to you and say, could you choose another film, yeah. please? It's Vanilla Ice is in it as well, right? Vanilla Ice is in it doing the turtle rap. Actually, I did bring you a gift. So our plan, because we're so organized, was to wear Turtles t-shirts to our live show, oh, which no I bought way. before we canceled Turtles. So Dan, a gift for you. Amazing. Thank you so much. Look at that. The classic cartoon Turtles. Nobody oh, goes home empty handed. Wow. Apart from you guys, I didn't bring anything for you. <laughs>
I love that. Thank you. So we're not screening or talking about Turtles 2 anymore, although I do recommend finding the DVD. It's quite good fun. Um, how did you get onto today's film? Well, again, once, once you said that this uh, couldn't be done, I was just thinking, what were the things that really made me laugh as a kid? What really influenced me? And the first movie of Naked Gun, I suddenly remembered... Because again, you start when you've got kids who are that age where they just laugh at slapstick. You start emulating the things that you remember, Mr. Bean scenes, and you know Chaplin's, you know the bread rolls with the forks and them dancing the feet. Um, and one of the scenes was from Naked Gun, the first movie. And I remember all I used to do as a kid with my friends. There's a scene which again, it's 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 the O.J. Simpson character at the beginning of the first movie where he tries to bust a boat full of people. And as he's trying to escape, he just keeps banging into things and, and it gets crazier and crazier. So he, like he bangs into a door and then he hits his foot and then his head hits a wall and then a bear trap catches his arm. And then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until he flips off the boat. And I just remember as kids, we used to just do that. We would try and build it up more and more. And so I was doing something like that with my kids in the, um, in the house. And I thought, oh my God, naked gun. There's never there's never been a series of movies that I just think are so brilliant. There's so many things to unpack about why it's such a good comedy that you could, you could just look at one aspect, like even the filming style or the, the delivery of the acting, um, as if it's kind of like, almost like a soap, like an American, like dynasty. Like that's why it's so funny. They're so straight in the acting. And then how the slapstick itself is almost like any other slapstick you've seen. It's, it's, it's really harsh slapstick. Like you can feel the pain of the, of the characters. So it's, for me, it's always been a sort of benchmark comedy movie, um, that series generally, because it's ridiculous. It's a bit outdated, obviously. Um, I think most of those movies from that era are, but, um, and, and then the people behind it, like David Zucker, the, the director, uh, behind Airplane, he 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 did a bunch of stuff that I just didn't even know. Like he did Basketball, which was a movie that starred Matt Stone and Trey Parker of South Park, which was a ridiculous low budget movie. And High School High, he did um, all these movies that were massive in my childhood that I just had no idea had the same grouping of people behind it. So the soundtrack is done by a guy called Ira Newman, and he did he did the soundtracks for most of the comedies of that period. So they were just like the team that were going around doing all this stuff. And then hilariously, David Zucker's brother, Jerry Zucker, is the guy who directed Ghost. So you've got that scene in there parodying his brother thing, and Jerry's the exec producer on this as well. It's yeah, it's it's just culturally so interesting as well in terms of the movie world. It's funny after Airplane, they sort of they did um Police Squad, the TV show that this film is based on, but they all sort of went their separate ways. And yeah, it's funny, like Ghost came out the year before. Yeah. Uh, or maybe the same year actually, but a bit earlier in the year. And then to have that scene with that music yeah yeah <laughs> exactly both. it's stunning and just oh my god the lines like police squad which is great if, if no one here has seen it do check it out it was the tv series before these movies and there's there's a line that's just always stuck in my head where frank drebin uh, leslie nielsen arrives at a scene of a murder and it's a husband who's been murdered and the wife is there and he just says this line where he goes i'm sorry we didn't get here sooner but your husband wasn't dead then <laughs> just brilliant <laughs> Those lines are brilliant. Like the the at the beginning of this movie when they talk when he's he's got his thousandth kill, and it's a, to to be fair, the last two were be backing over <laughs> the criminal. That's I yeah. So many aspects you can approach this movie from. So before we get into talking about Naked Gun two and a half, what we like to do on our podcast is read out the back of the DVD. Uh, Dan, you're an experienced podcaster. Can I please ask you to do the honors? 
Lieutenant Frank Drebin, Leslie Nielsen, loves a mystery. Why are we here? Is there life after sex? Yes, Drebin tackles the big issues, and the biggest of all is how to stop devious Quentin Habsburg, aka Robert Goulet in, in real life, plan to destroy the environment. Returning with Nielsen in this hilarious sequel are Priscilla Presley as Jane, the woman who can melt a cheese sandwich from 20 paces, and George Kennedy as intrepid Captain Ed Hocken. The gang's all here, and so are the laughs. Like Drebin, you're gonna love it. That's, yeah, that's that. Do you know uh, Quentin Habsburg, played by a guy called the Robert Goulet? I read a thing which is that uh, Priscilla Presley, when she was uh, married to Elvis, uh, he hated that guy so much, like the actor so much, that he once shot his TV with his gun uh, when he came on screen. He was so furious with him. The, the famous Elvis shooting a TV? Yeah, yeah. So you watched this as a kid? Yeah, yeah. I watched it. So I grew up in Hong Kong, and I, I can't remember if I saw it in the cinema or if I saw it. We just used to get uh, Laserdisc was big in Hong Kong. So I remember we used to get, does anyone here remember Laserdisc? Like the giant DVDs. Yeah. Um, we definitely watched it on Laserdisc. And we used to, yeah, we used to watch them um, quite a lot. It's, it's, I, I was always into comedy, really heavily into comedy. So I must have been the person who just saw this and, and brought it into the, and 33 and a half, I think, was in the cinemas. I think I saw that in the cinemas. So we went back and watched the rest of these. Yeah, but I don't know what age I was, really. Must have been like eight or nine or ten. You can watch it at that sort of age and maybe you don't get all the jokes, but it's, it's still a big, silly, like, cartoon of a film. Yeah. It's a to like a Looney Tunes, isn't it? The, the, in this movie, the three-handed slap is just <laughs> incredible from Priscilla. Um, those things, they're so... It, it, touches on every kind of joke there's nothing off limits that's what's amazing about it interestingly when i first moved here and i was saying earlier i met john lloyd who was the um it's the producer of qi and so on he was actually asked to direct 33 and a third oh, wow. yeah he was going to move <laughs> over to america and direct this movie and he didn't end up doing that but he did direct a bunch of adverts that leslie nielsen was in this country which were a beer does anyone remember those they were has anyone seen those? No, no one's of that age. Okay, um, no, they they were real. I've seen the I've seen the videos, and they they are they are basically Frank Drebin. They're just him doing a thing, delivering the beer or whatever. Um, and it's amazing just how this changed his career because the rest of his career was basically being Frank Drebin in various different roles, right? In movies like Spy Hard or Repossessed or. Um, I think he was in a scary movie even. Yeah, it totally changed his career. Like he was, uh, I think the, the filmmaker said they ruined his career, but it totally changed his career. It gave him a second lease of life when he was sort of aging out of a handsome leading man. Yeah. And he was this, you know, just had this amazing sense of humor, even though he isn't acting funny at all. Like he plays it deadly serious. Well, yes and no, because then you get the looks to camera where he's sort of, you know, he pulls those, he pulls those faces. Um, that's that's the other thing. It's a mixture, right? Like he's deadly. Like his voice, that the the voiceover that you'll get from him. My name is Frank. Dre like it's really beautiful and really serious. But then, yeah, he's he's got all the faces and the even the gags. Sometimes he sort of delivers a bit. You know, wah, wah, kinda. <laughs> he's such a good reactor. Yeah, uh, two things. I think the best, my favorite scene in the film is that dinner party at the beginning in the White House, and just him sort of being oblivious looking in the wrong direction at every point as a gag really kills me yeah <laughs> agreed um and he's also i wrote i wrote down a specific line that really got me which was um i i felt as i was watching it 
it's there's this line that people say about Shakespeare that if you're cast in a Shakespeare's play and you and you've got two lines, it doesn't matter because every role is genius. You know, you can have two lines and you're a memorable character. And I feel like that with this. It was um Savage, the character, when he was uh his demands <laughs> for where he wants to be sent to. And he gets the point and says, I want a good hotel. Something indicative of the people in there. <laughs> just, just like, and he says barely anything else in that movie. <laughs> what a character. The scene where he starts harmonizing with Priscilla in the bathroom. Just every character is a memorable character to a degree. Hector Savage from Detroit. Hey, I remember this pug. Ex-boxer. His real name was Joey Chicago. Oh, yeah. He fought under the name of Kid Minneapolis. Hey, I saw Kid Minneapolis fight once in Cincinnati. No, you're thinking of Kid New York. He fought out of Philly. He was killed in the ring in Houston by Tex Colorado. You know, the Arizona assassin? Yeah, from Dakota. I don't remember if it was north or south. North. South Dakota was his brother from West Virginia. You sure know your boxing. Well, all I know is never bet on the white guy. You got an address in there? Well, I've got a card that says Monique DiCarlo, 210 Blackman Street. That's the red light district. Wonder why Savage is hanging out down there. Sex, Frank? Uh, no, not right now, Ed. Uh, we got work to do. Have you got a favorite scene in the film or, or something which really stuck with you from, from watching it just now? I completely forgot about the sex scene, which I just thought was incredible. Just all those stock photo, um, videos of a, a spaceship going up and, and the, the drilling happening. And I thought that was an incredible sex scene. <laughs> um, and you can see its influence on movies like Austin Powers. And, you know, there's, there's not many movies in this vein anymore, which is a shame because it's just outright comedy. There's no, there's no space for anything else. And when you think it's getting slightly serious, then just a little punchline comes in. So, but yeah, I, I, that sex scene really made me laugh. The absurd comedy is gone. I'm not sure where it's gone or why. Maybe it's gone to television. You know, things like, like maybe what's on now, something like what we do in the shadows. Is, yes. is maybe a good comp. But, but yeah, we don't see these big screen comedies anymore. And it felt like maybe after Scary Movie, there was nothing really to take on that sort of absurd mantle yeah i don't know why it's i well you go through phases with comedy obviously so that that was a big part of that world and now there's a huge thirst for comedy that has a lot of drama and a lot of real meaning and feeling in it but there's nothing like you know i guarantee you're never going to laugh as hard than when you see rick mail and adrian edmondson beat the shit out of each other with baseball bats <laughs> you know it's that's just funny it's just this doesn't need any seriousness and i do wish we had more movies like this still that kind of were innocent you know outside of the questionable things we were talking about um the the innocence of just a pure gag and you know none of them ever replicated it really leslie nielsen went on to all these other movies and he didn't do it properly neither did david zucker really with all the other movies that he did they, they, they were all brilliant but these are mad and I think it's magic because Zucker and Nielsen were a combo which you see occasionally like like Rowan Atkinson and Richard Curtis or even John Lloyd with that with that Black Adder scene. Anything that Rowan has done where he hasn't had that core team has been great but not incredible. And same with these guys. This is magic in the collaboration of comedy there. Uh, it takes the actor and the producer, director to to slam that together. And um, 
yeah, I, you know, I would have loved to have seen them do more stuff, but they, they didn't for some reason. They could have just done more. Like, I'd be happy if they just kept doing Naked Guns, a bit like James Bond, come back every couple of years. Exactly, a, yeah. Scenario. What I'm impressed by with the film is it is full of, I mean, the jo there's jokes upon jokes in here. The, the script is funny, the performances are funny. All the stuff in the background is so good. Uh, I, I love the posters, I love the headlines on newspapers Yeah. Uh, as well. It's, it's like, I think if you laid it, like, it's, it's stacked. This, it, this would be... If you had to, like, you know, pound for pound, this would be a heavy bag of jokes. Yeah, it must have been an amazing writer's room. I imagine that's what it was. You had a group, you had the original script and they went, okay, we're doing a scene where they're going to be inside a bar and the bar is very sad. And someone said, what if every picture on the wall was a disaster? Titanic, the Hindenburg, what if, like, it must have been so delicious just sitting there, just coming up with these little extra background gags that you'll get if you watch it for the 10th time, right? Like, that's the whole idea. There's probably so much we missed in there. If you look on one of those sites where it says, look out for, there's probably a hundred of those in there. Um, and that's, yeah, it's just, it's just so much care, so much care into the comedy writing. It's one of the joys of watching something like this on the cinema, actually, is to be able to read all of the headlines and the joke, uh, you know, like bits of... Uh, there's so many people holding, like, books and newspapers and, and, and things in this film. But it does have a... You know, there, there is a serious plot. There is a genuine love story, which I think they do really well. And there's yeah. also, a, like, a contemporary issue. The environment is being discussed. Yeah. You know, in 91, it feels quite early for people to really, you know, start caring uh, about that as a big subject for yeah. a Hollywood movie. Yeah, really good point. And actually, that, like... Priscilla Presley is incredible in these films. Her comedy acting is absolutely amazing. And the relationship between those two, I forget, I I, I loved those two as a kid. Like they were, they I, I was very obsessed with comedy as a kid. So in my head, when people maybe have been looking at celebrities who were couples, in my head, it was, it was Leslie Nielsen and Priscilla Presley. Like they were just a long-term kind of like, I wonder what they're up to now, even though I knew that wasn't a thing. But I, that's just like, I guess like going forward in my own relationships, I was like, I want to, I want to Leslie Nielsen, Priscilla Presley, even though now obviously watching it, it was very sort of, uh, you know, him very going core, you know, and like <laughs> not looking at her breasts a lot and stuff, but like she, she's, she's great and she should have done way more. And I don't think she did. I think I'd be curious to know why she even did these, you know, what got her into saying yes to them. Because she didn't have a unless I'm wrong, did she have a big career? No, you know? she was doing screen acting. She was in you know soap operas and and things. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think she came in as I, I um, Richard Griffiths in this as well. Yeah. I think they were just looking for good actors. Yeah. Um, right. And Griffiths is only in this film, but Priscilla Presley's in all of them. I think they were just looking for people who could do could could be serious actors and who weren't people from SNL or you know in the comedy circuit. And I guess Priscilla Presley, you know, just came in into it through that world. Yeah, yeah, she's she's awesome. Um, and all of them, like Richard Griffiths, he's so amazing. And Ed, the guy who plays his boss, oh, yeah. like <laughs> you see them after years of having not watched the film, and it's like seeing old family members, isn't it? You're like, oh my god, you where have you been? George Kennedy, who plays uh, Ed, is uh, he's my favorite character, I think. Outside of Frank. We all love Frank. But he's so good at the setups. And he's he does payoff lines and yeah. little lines, you know, when he's like, sex. And Frank's like, no, not now. Not Frank. right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When he's foaming out the mouth yeah. as they're talking about the 30-year of marriage. Uh, and even at that scene at the end where he you know, thinks he's helping and he drops the guy out the window. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's, yeah, uh, they're, they're a really good pairing. But um, but yeah, I was really surprised. I totally forgot Richard Griffiths was in this film uh, when you when you picked it and yeah. sort of jumped on my chair and we get two Richard Griffiths in the film. Yeah. And he sort of looks the age that he looks in the 
like Harry Potter movies. So he does. He hasn't aged that guy. Yeah, some people just uh, you know they sort of have a, a timeless look to them. <laughs> uh, but I do love seeing him do his American accent when he's Earl Hacker, the uh, the villain. Oh yeah, what a weird bit that was. Like all this thing to a reveal to someone we've never seen before. And like, what was I, that? There were a few bits in it that kind of confused me in terms of what they were trying to achieve with that. But maybe that was the gag. It's like you know. Cool, cool. I haven't seen you, buddy. He's the recipient of uh, quite a few bump, uh, bumps to the head, the bowling balls and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is national treasure, Richard Griffiths being hit on the head with a bowling ball. I love it. I, the, all the slaps, that, like those slapstick moments are so beautifully filmed. It's, this is geeking out a bit too hard, but it's, it's, this, it's hard to explain how hard it is to get slapstick right. And they just seem to make a whole film out of... There's a scene in the first movie where... It's the O.J. Simpson character at the end in a baseball arena flipping off. And it just looks like, so he's, he's, he's in a stadium and Frank Drebin classic hits him. He goes down the stairs and he hits an end and the body flies over. So, you know, he's plunging down a huge amount and just the, the, whatever the, the dummy that they use for it or whatever, it's such like an intense flip and you know, it's going to hurt. And it, I just haven't seen it that well done in other movies it's it's really its own style of slapstick you feel the weight to a lot of things like it's all practical this is before cgi and whether it's something falling on the head or the, the dummy in the first film yeah. <laughs> like it feels real it's like everything lands yeah it's it was interesting a few things that didn't land and you kind of go i they did it did that annoy them to keep that in at the time because they had no choice it was part of it you know the scene where he says the boy scouts and he kind of says, oh, I was dating at the time. And for some reason, that just didn't feel the strongest thing. Or the prostate. There was that moment where I don't know, I'm remembering the jokes that didn't work <laughs> is the main thing. That's how good a film it is. You're sort of going, oh, there were three things that didn't work. Um, the the bit where she says, how's your prostate doing? And he says, oh, it's fine. It's uh, better than ever. It felt like they just not nailed uh, the punchline for him there. But there's a better joke before it. You know, like, oh, how's a kid who didn't have kids? Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's not. I, I wonder if some of it is like you know lost in the sands of time. You know, maybe in '91 those jokes killed. Well, exactly. Jaja Gaboring it. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We all wouldn't have known that. I couldn't believe it was her. It was like a dream. But there she was, just like I remembered her. That delicately beautiful face, and a body that could melt a cheese sandwich from across the room. And breasts that seem to say, hey, look at these. She was the kind of woman that made you want to drop to your knees and thank God you were a man. Yeah. She reminded me of my mother, all right, no doubt about it. Do you know how well this film did on release? I assume it did well, because I think it was that was a hot um production team you know a david zucker movie would have been a big thing so i assume really well did it it ended up in the top 10 movies of the year which i think for a, a comedy an 85 minute long comedy is a huge achievement we don't see comedies really outside of the dominions movies and despicable me in 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 sort of top 10s anymore it's lots of franchise films so even though this is a sequel it's great to see it in the top 10 what year was that it was 91 91 so what, what would have been the big hit of that year so it was in the top 10 and uh, it was knocked off the top uh, spot so it opened at number one when it opened but 
but then the next week Robin Hood Prince of Thieves came out oh, that was a great movie Kevin Costner uh, beat it but uh, it was a good year it was the year we had Terminator 2 Judgment Day we had Home Alone that year we had Silence of the Lambs Dances with Wolves uh, this is the well this is one of only two under 90 minute films uh, in the top 10 this came in at number 9 and number 10 in 91 was Get Teenage out. Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. You're kidding, really? <laughs> Another sequel, under 90 minutes, wow. came in at number 10. That's amazing. <laughs> this was released quite early in the year, so there was a point in 91 where this was the highest grossing film of the year. <laughs> Still can't screen it, though. <laughs> it, weird, it was a huge financial hit. Audience loved it, but critics kind of gave this film a hard time. Uh, Did they? It's, like, it's kind of odd. Like They loved the first one, and they were saying this wasn't this wasn't as good basically uh, got a really mean review in the LA Times uh, where someone said you know the title is funny the credits are funny and then they cite unfilmed the David Zucker the key art is funny with Frank Drebin on the bullets uh, but that's where the laughter ends pal like that's really harsh yeah that's not true I mean it's pretty crazy that a movie this old I know it's not too long ago but comedy can date quite quickly there were a lot of laughs in this room from uh from a crowd watching it at 12 p.m on a sunday like that's that's really cool that's the kind of thing that you you'd hope that you know david zucker and and leslie nielsen's obviously gone now but you'd love for them to sit in a cinema again and watch how it can translate to a new generation and yeah, over and 30 years get, later yeah <laughs> he used to do a thing where uh, paul murden wrote about it when he wrote this book called silent comedy ages ago where he said the bbc once just played just minutes of pure laughter and it was a direct feed live from a cinema where they were playing a Charlie Chaplin movie. And this was in, I think, like the 80s, it must have been. Um, and it was just that. You just you were at home if you were listening to Radio 4. All you were hearing was the sound of laughter from an audience at a Charlie Chaplin movie. And, you know, Chaplin probably, for the early movies, wouldn't have, wouldn't have got to experience that that much. Or, or us having in the 70s, never having, we'd only ever experienced so much comedy just on our TVs with a group of six people. It's really hard to tell sometimes when you find something really funny, whether or not a whole room finds it funny. You know, so if you go to the cinema and you watch a Marx Brothers movie now, the only other experience of that is assuming it must be really funny because you found it personally funny. But being in a room full of people laughing at something really is the game changer. It's the difference between seeing a comedian play to two people and then to an arena where they can be, it builds up your own laughter with the collective group laughter. There's a kind of group comedy intelligence that gets united and you all find things funnier maybe because the room is finding it funnier. Um, and it's just so nice to be able to see this film still get massive laughs in a, in this room. I think they're designed to be seen on the big screen, and, and, and you're totally right. I think that's why it's in the top ten. You know, like it's word of mouth. I saw this movie; it's really funny. You yeah. have to go and watch it, and and people want to share those experiential things. You know, who doesn't like recommending something that's funny to someone yeah. else? Uh, and I think that's maybe why that works. And I do wonder if at a critic screening, maybe they're watching it on their own. Uh, you know, some ungodly hour trying to make notes, and it's it's not the same experience of just letting it wash over you and 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 seeping in. Yeah. Well, maybe it did suck at the time, and it's just a bit better now. Maybe those are like real dad jokes, which just aged better. He had a few champions. Roger Ebert was a fan, but he didn't really critique it. He was just like, what can I say? It's funny again. But his review of this one is, is, is very positive. And I think he's a Zaz fan, a, a fan of the filmmakers, and yeah, right. just go to things. So yeah, good to see a, a major critic championing uh, yeah. comedy. By the way, I brought this, I, I tried to do research on the way on Leslie Nielsen. This is a book that he wrote with a guy called David Fisher called The Naked Truth. Um, and annoyingly, 
it's entirely made up. There's just not a single correct fact. It just talks about all the Oscars he's won, all the <laughs> all, like working with NASA. It's yeah, but it's very funny. But it's yeah, nothing. I was wondering if uh, if if Naked Gun or Leslie Nelson has sort of worked its way into any of your projects. Uh, yeah, it comes up time and again when we're talking about movies. Like someone might mention a movie because it's relevant to the research. The only the only time it comes up is me defending any movie. Like if they're like Repossessed suck, I'll be like that didn't suck. It was awesome. <laughs> It does suck, but I do, I do try and defend it. No, uh, not not audio wise. It's quite hard to to I I be interesting to work out where I've been influenced in my personal life. I I think with my kids, I think that's that's the biggest influence. It's like I've I've got these weird memories of lines that are said in the movie that you end up saying to your children. Uh, the way you do slapstick around the house, um, which is kind of, I think, a better uh, legacy, really, as a comedian. If you can eke your way into the way that people bring up their kids and make them laugh, that's that's pretty cool. Um, and I just think he was the funniest man. And it, you can't tell whether or not Leslie Nielsen was funny in this way prior to the airplane movies because he was as you were saying he was a straight man and he used to be in this this incredible movie forbidden planet which is one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever and he's extraordinary in it it's a very straight role but then if you watch interviews with him after these movies he used to do things like he would go on interviews and he would always bring a fart machine on with him but he would never tell the hosts that he had a fart machine on him so as they were interviewing him he would start giving a very serious answer and he could just press a button and they do it so he'd be like well it was a very interesting project to do as it and he would never give away they just saw he's an old man farting <laughs> and not realizing it and occasionally he was caught out because he just can't keep it in he's just laughing his ass off as he's doing it um but he kind of turned into this comic character and he was he lived Frank Drebin, and that's really nice when it's like like with the Marx Brothers, you know, Groucho Marx lived Groucho Marx outside of being Groucho Marx in the movies. And we don't have many people like that. They just talk about the arts and stuff like that. You know, Coogan is not Partridge outside of that. And Ron Atkinson is very serious. He's not Mr. Bean. But he was he tried to be that guy and make people laugh and smile in real life. So he's just a bit of a hero, really, I think, outside of the movie and either they saw him and captured that or he took that on afterwards i don't know i think they were kindred spirits maybe because his role in airplane is, is quite small compared to you know leading these films and uh i think they just got on like apparently he was the guy who would corpse during the read-throughs like he would he loved the jokes and you, he would get it all out of his system to then perform it right uh, on screen so he's a big, big comedy fan and i think he met three really funny people yeah that, and yeah and they knew how to bottle him which is incredible. And, and I'm glad they did because we got to watch uh, Naked Gun at two and a half today. Thank you so much uh, for talking to us today, Dan. It's really nice to have Naked Gun two and a half in our lineup at our fictional film festival. We've got the Naked Gun in there as well. Uh, Ali Plum yeah. uh, picked that. I think it was like episode nine. We're on episode 89 now. <laughs> uh, so that was a while ago. So maybe in 80 more episodes, we'll get round to uh, 33 and a, yeah. a three and a third. Normally towards the end of our show, we sort of ask about yeah, what would you do if, if I was to give you a cinema and do a real screening of the film? But we, we kind of did that. Uh, but I do wonder if, uh, you know, if we did this all again and, and I gave you, you know, our unlimited budget that we have uh, in, in an audio format, uh, is there a favorite cinema you'd like to put this film on for? Oh, yeah, my local cinema in Avalon in Australia, um, just because uh, it's, it'd be, it's a great community place. Um, so just an Avalon at cinema, it's called. Um, 
and uh, there's no other reason other than it's a good excuse for me to go back home, see my family, and then watch a good movie. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do that. We'll set that up uh, for a second screening. Have you got a favorite cinema snack or sort of a, a bit of a routine when it comes to the, the kiosk or when you go to the movies? Uh, pick and mix, always. I'd, gummy bears and, and sort of any bits of chocolate. Yeah. Nothing crazy. And a massive Coke. Bigger Coke than you get in any other spot in the world. The cinema Coke is is a new size all onto <laughs> its bucket. own. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy that. <laughs> okay, well we can do that. We'll, we'll we'll take the podcast to Australia. We'll make sure you've got lots of Haribos and, and chocolates and a bucket of Coke. Okay, I think that brings us to the end. Can you just remind us of the name of your book? Yeah, The Theory of Everything Else. And we're a podcast festival. Is there an audiobook version of this? Yeah, I'm doing it tomorrow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, yeah. So that's very exciting. And there's going to be a few guests on it as well. Um, I've tried to... There's possibly going to be a few people from the story in it. I haven't decided whether or not we're going to do that in the end. But there's certainly going to be a fun little extra at the end where I'm chatting to some interesting people who are in some way associated with the book. That's a good tease, isn't it? Yeah, I almost got I almost got a um, the daughter of a secret service agent called Jerry Parr, um, and I wanted to get her specifically because I'll just tell this quick story because it's it's pretty fun. Um, Years ago, when Ronald Reagan was made president, he was there was an assassination attempt on him, and he was walking out of a hotel in Washington D.C. A guy called John Hinckley Jr. jumped out. He had his gun and he shot at the president. And he, as far as everyone knew, missed. And this one guy, Jerry Parr, who was a Secret Service agent, he managed to grab Reagan and he shoved him into the car. He fell down onto his stomach and he jumped on top of him. And they slammed the door and they got the limo out of there. And they headed back to the White House. They checked Reagan to see whether he was shot. Turns out he wasn't. Uh, so they said, okay, let's go to the White House. So as they're driving back, Reagan is still feeling, probably because he's, he's in his 70s at this point and he's just been slammed into a car. He's probably got bruising. But a little blood comes out of his mouth and Jerry Parr sees that. and He thinks, oh shit, no, you have been shot. We just haven't been able to identify it because of all the pain. So he immediately breaks all protocol that you would with the president and says, get, get to the local hospital now. And they say, we can't do that. He says, get there now. And they do. And they get Reagan there. And the doctors later say that had he, and he was shot, had he been there five minutes later, he would have uh, died. Just no question, he would have died. Uh, so Jerry Parr saved his life. He's an amazing guy. And he got all these medals and so on for having done it. So the interesting thing about the story is that the only reason that Jerry Parr was there that day is because as a kid, his dad took him to the cinema to see a movie called Code of the Secret Service. And it was all about the Secret Service. And it made him obsessed with it and want to do that when he was older. The lead actor in that movie playing the Secret Service agent was Ronald Reagan. Oh. Wow. <laughs> so Reagan effectively saved himself <laughs> all those years later. Some real time travel logic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when he woke up after surgery, after all the waking up, after all the drugs, and Jerry Parr was sitting there. Jerry Parr said to him, do you know you're an agent of destiny? Because the only reason I'm here is because of you from childhood, from a cinema experience. So yeah, it's... Um, his daughter, Jerry Parr's daughter, is still alive, and um, she spoke to me about it. I'm trying to get her on the audiobook as well. But um, there's a little cinema 
story I love it. to wrap wow. it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, awesome. That's uh, amazing. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, everyone in the audience. Thank you for, for coming out to King's Place today. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Do check out our podcast, uh, 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. Recent episodes include, uh, we've got guests, John Ronson, Jenny Owen Youngs, and, and Dan's episode is going to be out in a couple of weeks, too. Uh, you can relive the magic. Um, <laughs> uh, so can we please join me in giving a big round of applause to Dan, our special guest. Thank you. Uh, also to Jake, to Giles, to Duncan, uh, running the tech and being our stage manager today, uh, and Zoe, Becker, and Sally at King's Place. Big round of applause, please. Cool. That's a wrap. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.